Today on Government Matters, NASA's Artemis mission aims to land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon by 2026. My conversation with two agency leaders about the mission and their plans to get to Mars. And a help wanted sign for the tech savvy at federal agencies. The new digital core for young specialists kickstarting their careers in government service. I'll talk with the co-founders of the program and their plans for recruiting and keeping young talent. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. For nine years in a row, NASA has been rated the best place to work in government, and they're sending people back to the moon and eventually onto Mars. Pam Melroy is NASA's deputy administrator. She's a former combat and test pilot and former astronaut. Carla Smith-Jackson is deputy chief acquisition officer and assistant administrator for procurement at NASA. Ladies, welcome to the program. Pam, I want to start you. with you. Thank uh, you. Why are we going back to the moon? Didn't we already do that? Well, Mimi, we're going back to the moon to stay this time, which is very different. I often compare uh, Apollo to um, uh, Contiki, which was a uh, uh, Norwegian explorer wanted to prove that it was possible to cross uh, the Pacific Ocean in a primitive raft uh, for you know proving that it was possible to do. And uh, when you look at the capabilities that we had, I mean, the size of the computer, it had less computing power than your phone. Uh, we proved it was possible, but we should be thinking about our trip to the moon more like the Mayflower. We're going to stay and uh, we're gonna have a sustainable presence and we're gonna learn how to do science uh, with humans on the surface of another planet to prepare us to go to Mars. So it's been 52 years since NASA first landed a human on the moon. You mentioned that obviously technology is way more advanced than it was back there, but is it fundamentally the same process to get back to the moon? Well, uh, we definitely have some changes. Uh, the uh, fact that we were going essentially on a short camping trip um, had a big impact on the design of the vehicles. Uh, they, they basically had the a very limited capability. Uh, since we intend to stay, we're not looking at uh, so much at disposable vehicles anymore, but at reusable vehicles. And uh, so you can uh, see that in the Orion uh, spacecraft, which is the only vehicle right now that can carry humans into deep space since Apollo but it's much larger. It's meant to carry more people, four people, and uh, to bring back uh, a significantly greater amount of science. And Carla, what's the latest on the timelines for the Artemis mission? Are you going to get back to the moon on time? Yes, we're working towards those milestones now, collaborating with our industry partners to make sure that we make all the right interim steps, incentivizing the right behavior so that we can achieve our goal. Well, Carla, I would imagine that the procurement process is also quite different now than it was 52 years ago. You know, back then the federal government did everything and now you're dealing with private companies. 
Right. So right now what we're focusing on is partnership with industry. We're kind of making the transformation from just the make-buy to more innovative ways, um, leveraging commercialization, um, looking at ways where um, our industry partners can amortize their development costs throughout the life of that usable um, launch or space vehicle. Um, we're looking at ways for them to make private investment and then for them maybe to retain things like data rights and um, looking for innovative ways to uh, make payments and offset their costs for the long term, which makes it more affordable for us as taxpayers, as well as um, leveraging the commercialization of the space economy. So Carla, what, what would you say are the biggest challenges for getting to the moon in five years? You know, I understand, for example, um, getting new spacesuits has become a challenge. What, what are you doing to overcome those kinds of obstacles? It, it's really interesting. Um, it's an exciting time to be at NASA, NASA procurement, because we, we have multiple, uh, we call them complex um, acquisitions with uh, space. We have the suits procurement. Um, we are leveraging a commercial model there. Um, it's a services delivery model versus a hardware delivery model. Um, we also are looking at the human landing system. Uh, we leveraged a broad agency announcement. We're trying to maintain competition throughout the life of most of our procurements and then transition to this um, way that we can leverage the cost by delivering the service and the hardware comes with the service and then we partner through the public partner part I'm sorry the private partner private public partnerships um, to be able to work together as a team to accomplish our goals and meet our schedule well Pam uh, walk me through um, President Biden's proposed 2022 budget for NASA and what it will do for the agency assuming Congress uh, approves it that's right. The 2022 budget uh, affirms the continuity of purpose, uh, which is very, very important when you're putting together a strategy that is uh, going to take you 20 to 25 years in the future. It's really important uh, not to uh, change that strategy. There's always uh, evolution and uh, the capability to uh, incorporate new information, but the 22 budget supports a return to the moon so that we can achieve the objectives that we need to have in science and technology operations and sustainability which is basically infrastructure that allows us to stay on the surface of the moon and uh, the budget supports that uh, we are engaged in looking um, out ahead and saying okay what is it that we're going to need to start working on next year and the year after that uh, to lay in uh, a, really a 20-year plan uh, to get to Mars. And what's interesting about that is uh, 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit more when I was uh, flying, there was basically uh, a large monolithic human spaceflight program. It was called the Space Shuttle. And then of course we built the International Space Station and when the Space Shuttle ended, we transitioned to that large single program. Now what we have stretching out in front of us is the SLS rocket, Orion, the spacecraft, the uh, exploration ground systems, the human lander system to the surface of the moon. Looking ahead, we're going to have to have a habitat. We'll have to have some kind of transportation system so that our astronauts can do science on the surface of the moon. And then we need to be thinking about the Mars transport vehicle Mars entry vehicle and a descent and then an ascent vehicle to get back to the transport vehicle and come back. And when you start thinking about that, 
our acquisition strategy really has to be aligned to the entire 20 year approach. We need to think very carefully about each element of that. And so that's what we're trying to do and lay that in uh, that budget in for the future. All right, well, ladies, we're gonna take a real quick pause here, but we'll be back. Coming next on Government Matters, more of my conversation about NASA's programs and missions. I'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm speaking with NASA's Deputy Administrator, Pam Melroy, and Senior Procurement Executive, Carla Smith-Jackson. Um, we were talking, um, Pam, before the break about the, um, the budget. And what I'm worried about a little bit is the Artemis program, the space launch system, uh, is what takes the crew into space. It costs $2 billion per launch. And NASA's whole budget is around $20 billion. How is that going to work? Uh, that's a really good question, and it's one that we're pretty focused on right now, uh, understanding uh, how to, uh, as we go forward, we're, we're really almost past the development phase. We have to do some test flights, uh, but the rocket is being stacked right now, and uh, we intend to launch, uh, we're hoping, by the end of this year. So uh, as we move past uh, development, into the operations and the sustainment uh, phase of that vehicle. Uh, th this is where we're focused right now is how to bring the cost down so that uh, the price per launch uh, can go down. Uh, one of the things about rockets is the more you fly them, uh, the more you amortize the cost of the infrastructure needed to assemble and uh, and and launch them. So uh, that's that's the other thing that we're focused on is you know, really understanding that launch cadence so that we can optimize around it. I want to ask you about the Earth science side for NASA. What's the agency doing to monitor and address climate change? Uh, NASA is really proud of our role in uh, being the eyes in the sky. Uh, that's what we do. We uh, build, launch, and um, uh, assemble the satellites that allow us to look down and gather data on the Earth. And in partnership uh, with NOAA, who has operational responsibility for dissemination of data such as weather, uh, we partner with them, but we work closely with them to make sure that we're measuring the right things. And uh, in the current budget, uh, the fiscal 22 proposal, uh, we have substantially upped our uh, proposals to work in the climate area, in particular what we're calling the Earth System Observatory, to really systematically take a look at what the most important parameters that we should be measuring and studying uh, to provide those who have the responsibility to make decisions about what to do around climate change have the data they need. And you know, the first A in NASA is for aeronautics. What are you doing in aeronautics that's pushing the envelope? We're excited to say that the aeronautics directorate is doing some very interesting work uh, around sustainability, green aviation. Uh, in particular, uh, we have an initiative uh, that we are putting together that uh, will uh, take us further in reducing emissions. 
we, we want to meet the targets of reducing uh, the emissions by half uh, by 2050 and uh, potentially even more than that. And that's around um, some really novel systems that allow engines to burn substantially less fuel at altitude. Uh, some of that actually has to do with the structure of the aircraft. Um, we have a long history at NASA in supporting the uh, aviation industry, and that's why the U.S. aviation industry is really at the top of, of the world in terms of capability. And uh, we intend to lead the way for sustainability in the future. And Carla, Pam talked about the mission to Mars. Do we really have the, the money and the wherewithal to get that far? I believe we do. Um, it's really an exciting time, as I mentioned earlier, um, because we are able to leverage a number of different buying techniques, um, longer term contracts, like I mentioned before, collaborating with industry. We do a lot of um, back and forth discussion with ways that we can incentivize the right behaviors. Pam mentioned amortizing development costs throughout the life of the program, um, using some commercialized or commercialization techniques that are not normally found um, if you just a strictly uh, traditional FAR type contract. And so um, a number of these things, along with um, maintaining competition throughout the life of uh, these procurements, will make them much more affordable and make our schedules achievable. And Pam, I can't let you go until I ask this last question. What's more stressful, going into space on the shuttle or being the number two at NASA? I'll tell you what, when you're, uh, uh, I, we may have some challenges, but my uh, life is not in danger when I go to work <laughs> these days. So uh, I, I actually, it's, it's a tremendous honor actually to, uh, to uh, move from leading a crew uh, going into space to uh, being a part of the leadership team of the entire enterprise. Uh, and it's, it's thrilling and it makes me very happy. Well, we appreciate your leadership and on both sides. Ladies, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Next, the government is posting a help wanted sign to recruit early career technology specialists. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the co-founders of the U.S. Digital Corps launching this fall to kickstart federal technology careers. I'll be right back. The Biden administration is looking for more technology experts to address White House priorities. The U.S. Digital Corps is a new two-year program to recruit early career technologists who can address a range of issues like pandemic response and cybersecurity. Caitlin Gandhi and Masha Danilova are co-founders of the U.S. Digital Corps. Masha is also a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. Ladies, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Caitlin, I want to start with you. What can the U.S. Digital Corps offer to recent college graduates that's different from the higher pay and the glamour of a job in the private sector? Yeah, absolutely. So technology innovation is happening at an exponential rate, and I'm just so excited that the federal government is investing in our technology workforce. And one of the incredible things that fellows will be able to do with the Digital Corps is work on some really high-impact work. Um, we are going to make a difference in how people use and experience government services. And this fellowship is a great way to pursue that if you are interested in public service and making a difference for your fellow Americans. How will you select fellows? What criteria are you looking for? 
Yeah, first and foremost, we are looking for folks that are mission aligned. And so they want to do this work, they want to make a difference. They want to um, change the way people experience government services. And second of all, we are looking for skilled technology talent. And so we are looking for candidates that have the knowledge and ability in five different fields, software engineering, product management, design, data science, and cybersecurity. So those are the areas that we're looking for. And we have a particular focus on um, early career fellows. And so what I mean by early career is folks that are both from traditional early career backgrounds, early careers in technology. So um, right out of a four-year uh, program, undergrad program, but we also have a focus on bringing folks that are new in their technology career, but from non-traditional backgrounds. And so for us, that means boot camps, certification programs, we are uh, looking to recruit folks that are reskilling into the technology workforce, including our veterans. So not necessarily college graduates. Not necessarily. The opportunity is open to everyone, and we are looking for folks that are looking for that junior level technology work, kind of skilled uh, entry level technology work. And Masha, bringing you in, tell me more about how you're going to incorporate the White House priorities of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility into this program. Absolutely. So I think that's fundamentally like a core tenet of this program. It's really critical for us to ensure that either this program is a reflection of, you know, the needs of the nation. And to do that, we really need to focus on making sure that we're um, finding, recruiting, placing diverse talent and ensuring that all of those folks are extremely supported in their roles as they're placed within those agencies. Um, one of the ways that we're doing that is having a home base within GSA and TTS um, where we, we have a lot of um, kind of the core support that's going to come in terms of mentorship, in terms of um, L&D, and uh, really making sure that folks are set up for success there. Caitlin, how are you choosing the different agencies that are hosting the fellows? I understand that currently there are five agencies. Yes, that's right. So we have five agencies that we're definitely placing in for the next year. That includes GSA itself, um, as well as we have CISA, we have CFPB, um, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the VA. And we also have a number of other interested agencies and departments within agencies across the federal government. So we have really high interest. And what we're looking for are agencies that have high impact technical projects, strong technical leadership in teams, and also are creating a supportive environment for fellows for the, both their personal and professional growth. For a lot of these folks, it may be their first career, uh, first job, and it also may be their first time in federal government. So we wanna make sure that they are having a, a great experience, they're learning and growing, and that they wanna stay at the end of those two years. And Masha, I understand that you are a fellow yourself in a different program. What's been your experience and, and what perspective does that give you for keeping early career technologists in government jobs? Absolutely. So as a Presidential Innovation Fellow, I think the, the way that our program is formed right now is we have kind of a core central office within Technical Transformation Service, and then we're placed out to agencies. And I think learning through that, how the importance of building community at the core of a program um, and how, how critical that is really to the success has really enabled us to make sure that we're building this program in a similar fashion, again, so that the fellows will have community at a central core. And Masha, can you give me a specific example of a technology problem that a, uh, a Digital Core fellow would need to solve? Sure. Um, 
So actually, Caitlin, do you want to cover that one? I know that you've been um, more involved with that side of the house. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been talking about a number of high impact projects with our partner agencies or potential agencies. They are often aligned with the presidential priorities, but we're looking at impact projects that are in the fields of health, economic recovery, equity, climate and sustainability, among others. And one example of this at the VA, we've been in discussion, the VA is doing a lot to modernize its digital experience right now. And they're delivering new features on VA.gov and the VA mobile app every day. And so the fellows that we place in the VA, one of their projects may be to help um, continue that innovation and continue to deliver the great experience for veterans that are looking to the VA for their services. All right. Well, ladies, thanks so much and good luck with this new program. Thank you so much. And thanks for having us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.